this is the lower limb quiz. We might do another one, we'll see how we go. Um, I think these days we're living in the shadow of Chat GPT and its progeny. Who knows what is to come? But there'll no doubt be a backlash. Students will have to sit and write essays inside an exam room like we used to do. And professors are going to have to actually mark things again, again like we had to do. And it is actually possible that we will both start to learn something. And that's a personal opinion. Just ignore my personal opinion, particularly if you don't agree with it for the moment. So I'm going to vary this a little bit. Some of it, a lot of it's going to be multi-choice like we've done before, but there will be others that aren't, and just to consider it. Question one. In homology between the upper and lower limb, what are the equivalents in the upper limb of the ilium, ischium, and pubis? So that would be like a short essay. See if you can try and write that, or even in a point form if you're listening to this. That, that's a useful thing. So not a multi-choice here. Now, put simply, we'll talk about the answer now, but there are structural similarities between the ilium and the scapular body, the ischium and the coracoid, where there's a discrete muscle attachment, the short-headed biceps like the biceps femoris and the coracobrachialis. And, of course, the pubis is equated with the precoracoid. So part of the answer that you've got to include is that and it is actually also interspecies and developmental. The word coracoid is actually Greek for raven, and it reflects the shoulder assembly of mammals, which are called therians, which are marsupials. The um, acromiocoracoid is formed in birds for biceps attachment, although that is rigid. And our attachment with the clavicle is more a bit like that of dinosaurs. So I don't expect you to know all of these kinds of um, developmental differences and so on, but to know, uh, as I've said, the first part of how you might answer that question in a short essay. So continuing on the question two, there's a vascular anastomosis around the anterior superior iliac spine and also around the vertebral scapula. Can you outline their similarities and significance? So that's a kind of loaded question. Think about also a short essay answer to that and have a go at it. What are these anastomoses? Do we know something about them around the anterior superior iliac spine and around the vertebral scapula between the upper limb and the lower limb? And why do they matter? Well, here, of course, I suggest that you go back and you listen to uh, my podcasts, AUL, the anatomy of the upper limb, two, the pectoral girdle, and ALL, four, the anatomy of the hip. But in brief, what you should include in your answer is, in the upper limb, there's a complicated anastomosis around the vertebral border of the scapula between the component branches of the first part of the subclavian artery, sometimes the third part, actually, and when there's a variation there, and the third part of the axillary artery. So here you need to assess the anastomoses between the circumflex scapular vessel and the so-called dorsal scapular artery. And here too there can be variation in the formation and size of the transverse cervical artery, one of the thyrocervical branches from the first portion of the subclavian, and the formation of a so-called superficial cervical artery variant. But the point of this is that there's an occlusion between the upper subclavian and the lower axillary artery. And if that's present, then there are already a series of collaterals, as I've described them, that have been built in. Now, there's a similar arrangement in the lower limb between the branches of the external iliac artery the internal iliac artery and bits of the femoral artery in the lower limb in the blood supply of collaterals to the muscle and bone around the anterior superior iliac spine. So there's some homology here. There are connections. If there's, again, for practical purposes, an occlusion, 
in the external ILAC artery, even in the common ILAC artery, and the femoral artery, what we used to call the common femoral artery. And the anastomoses here include branches of the superficial femoral artery. Uh, these days we call that actually the femoral artery. The external iliac artery, uh, and these include the so-called circumflex iliacs, one superficial and the other deep, so the superficial circumflex iliac from the femoral artery, and the deep circumflex iliac artery, which is one of the two branches of the external iliac artery. Can you think of the other branch there? That's the inferior epigastric. And the internal iliac artery, which has a posterior division through the superior gluteal artery and the iliolumbar. So again, there's a natural anastomotic collateral network that's that is already present if there's an obstruction of the external iliac artery down to the femoral artery, that bit above the inguinal ligament. We continue with some short essay answers. I'd recommend that you try and do this, try and write a page or two pages on it and see what it looks like. We'll be going shortly into multi-choices. But question three, how would you describe where the saphenofemoral junction lies in anatomical terms? That's a short answer question. Well, again, the way I'd approach this, I, I care about this because we still perform the Trendelenburg operation of saphenofemoral ligation for varicose veins, and it can even be an emergency operation in someone with an advancing great saphenous vein thrombosis. If that extends up into the femoral vein, that operation was emergently done. It was done on my father, who had uh, HIT syndrome, um, uh, with such an advancing lesion, and they tied off the saphenofemoral junction, so that that diminishes the likelihood of a deep femoral venous extension, and therefore a pulmonary embolus risk. So we still need to know where it is. It's a common mistake is to make the incision really too low, so that the operator is always kind of looking upwards towards the junction. That's obviously a bad thing to do. Uh, there is, if you remember a normal distribution, a Gaussian or bell curve, of the cephalofemoral junction, which is below and lateral to the pubic tubercle. Now, that's important because if we're feeling a femoral lump, something that is below and lateral to the pubic tubercle is maybe a saphena varix, as it's called, whereas something that is above and medial is basically an inguinal mass or an inguinal ligament often, uh, inguinal hernia often, that is, that is the um, uh, typical case. But if we look at the saphenofemoral junction, that is, as I've said, a bell curve or a Gaussian curve that is centred around about one inch or 2.5 centimetres um, below and lateral to the pubic tubercle. And you can correlate that point that you're feeling with palpating the femoral artery or the common femoral artery and then moving your finger a bit medially to where the vein would be located, the sort of same surface anatomical approach to having a femoral venous puncture. So you're correlating the saphenofemoral junction with those two markers. What are the four typical tributaries, of course, that have to be ligated to prevent recurrence? We remember those. We know them, of course, the superficial and deep external pudendal vein. The latter often comes off the femoral vein. About 30% of cases that does need to be ligated because it can lead to recurrent vulval varices if the vein recanalizes. The superficial epigastric vein, the superficial circumflex iliac vein, which we've already the latter we've just met. Um, you don't ligate, actually, the long saphenous vein until you see it entering the femoral vein. So tributaries can come off the femoral vein. I had a, um, a resident who ligated the, the femoral vein twice, which is uh, in two different patients. So that's not a great thing to do. You uh, don't ligate the long saphenous vein until you've identified the saphenofemoral junction because theoretically, and in fact in practice, the these tributaries can come off the femoral vein. But unquestionably, the femoral vein looks different to the long saphenous vein. That was often a question that was asked. Um, and that is 
you know, what is the difference between the femoral vein and the saphenous vein? Well, firstly, you see, of course, a junction, but the femoral vein is a blue, thin-walled capacitance vessel, whereas the great saphenous vein, or the long saphenous vein, is actually very thick-walled and rather white. It has a tunica media. It appears whitish, and that's because it can undergo a degree of venospasm. At the saphenofemoral junction, it's not uncommon to see a kind of whitish line which is also seen at that junction. Of course, you're seeing the junction go through the so-called fossa ovalis, as it's called, and you're seeing the falciform ridge there of the fasciolata. If you want to have a, a, um, a, a recap of that, you can go through our section on the fascia of the lower limb in one of the earlier podcasts. So that'll be the answer that you'd give. Question four. Can you describe the innervation of the pectineus? So continuing just for a little while on short essay questions. And think about that, what you would write about the pectineus muscle and its innervation. Well, of course, the question's asking, what's the question asking? It's asking about the dual innervation of that, of that uh, muscle. And it's kind of asking you what the differences are between the obturator nerve or the adductor compartment and the other compartments in the thigh. The muscle, as I say, as you remember, has a dual nerve supply. The anterior division of the femoral nerve comes down as L2-3 by a branch that passes typically behind the femoral sheath. And then there's also a twig from the obturator nerve, which is L2-3, by a rather poorly named accessory obturator nerve. Probably be better to call that an accessory femoral nerve since it comes off the posterior divisions of L2-3, whereas the main obturator nerve, as we know, is the anterior divisions of L2-3-4. The femoral nerve, as we recall, are the posterior divisions of L2-3-4. And we know that because the way the limb bud forms in rotating around the 180 degrees so that everything at the back is all anterior divisions of the lumbosacral plexus. Everything at the front, the quadriceps, are all the posterior divisions of the lumbosacral plexus. Um, that little particular nerve, the, the little branch of the so-called accessory obturator nerve, typically enters in about 10 or 20% of cases in the dorsomedial aspect of the muscle. So in theory, it has a double nerve supply. Uh, and a poorly named, as I say, accessory obturator nerve. Now, you might say, well, why on earth is the pectineus important? The muscle has surgical importance in, as I think I mentioned in one of the podcasts, in strangulated femoral hernia. Because if you're doing a low so-called Lockwood operation from below, you close the space of the femoral canal between its anterior border, that's the inguinal ligament, and its posterior border that you can see there, which is the split part of the fasciolata that runs over the pectineus, so between that and the pectineus fascia. If you're doing an upper approach, you don't see that, of course, because you're above the origin of the pectineus, and you close the inguinal ligament to the periosteum that overlies the superior pubic ramus, which some people call the pectineal ligament. And so it's important to understand the anatomy from above, if you might be doing it, in someone with a small bowel obstruction who has a strangulated femoral hernia, and the anatomy from below, where you might be doing it electively in someone with a femoral hernia. Um, you might therefore know that the anatomy of the way you're closing the femoral canal, bringing the inguinal ligament downwards like a shutter, then depends on your knowledge of this pectineus fascia, and that becomes important. So we've done a few little sort of short answer questions. We'll move to the multi-choice questions. Question five, the trochanteric anastomosis is a network of A, the inferior gluteal artery, B, the superior gluteal artery, C, the femoral artery, D, the profound the femoris artery. Well, the trochanteric anastomosis is actually for the supply of the femoral head, and it includes the first two, which is the inferior gluteal and the superior gluteal artery. 
and the medial and lateral circumflex femoral arteries. That's what it is. But remember, that's different, of course, from the cruciate anastomosis, which is in the upper thigh, the inferior gluteal, which is the axial vessel of the lower limb, the medial and lateral circumflex arteries come in again, and then running up from below is a branch of the first perforator. So that's a cross-like anastomosis. So we're correct where we said the trochanteric anastomosis has the inferior and superior gluteal arteries in it, but doesn't have the femoral artery or the profound femoris artery. It has branches of the femoral artery, medial and lateral circumflex, but that's not strictly a correct answer. Question six. The iliotibial tract, A, stabilises the knee in extension, but not in flexion. B, acts with gluteus maximus to rotate the hip. C, iliotibial band syndrome is a form of bursitis. And D, the iliotibial tract is partially innervated by the inferior gluteal nerve. So to remember all of these, as you're listening to this podcast, obviously you can stop it, just go back and stop it at A and think, is A right or wrong? Or is B right or wrong? Or the other thing you can do, I think is easier, is to just write it down and see what you think. So the iliotibial tract stabilises the knee in extension but not in flexion. Well, that's not correct. It sounds like it should be. But actually, the iliotibial tract stabilises the knee in partial flexion so that it's constantly in action when we're running and walking. Actually, then, a person is kind of leaning forward and the knee is then slightly flexed, like in getting up off a sofa. The iliotibial tract is the main support there against gravity. During knee extension, the iliotibial band actually moves anteriorly to the lateral condyle of the femur, while about 30 degrees of knee knee flexion, the iliotibial band moves posteriorly to the lateral condyle. The second one I had was the iliotibial tract B acts with the gluteus maximus to rotate the hip. B is correct, and there are some medial uh, and uh, lateral elements, but largely these are the actions of the lateral rotators. C, the iliotibial band syndrome is a form of bursitis. That's actually a bit of a trick question, a little complicated, but it is a feature of cyclists and runners, although there's no real demonstrable bursa. So it's particularly a feature of the bent knee running downhill, for example, that people get pain with iliotibial band syndrome, but there's no strict bursa there. And then D, the iliotibial tract is partially innervated by the inferior gluteal nerve. D is also correct as it shares the innervation, as we'll recall, with the tensor fasciae latae and gluteus maximus muscles. So so largely, that's the superior gluteal nerve, which is L4 to S1. But there is some inferior gluteal nerve, L5 to S2 supply as well. So not so easy, that one. Question seven relates to the piriformis. The piriformis A originates from the lumbosacral disc. B almost completely fills the lesser sciatic foramen above the sacrospinous ligament. C may be pierced by the common peroneal nerve. D has the sciatic nerve running alongside about one quarter of the way between the coccygeal tip and the greater trochanter. So let's take each of these. The piriformis originates from the lumbosacral disc. Now, uh, that's not correct. Of course, the piriformis, which is only a landmark muscle, really, but an important one, takes its origin from around the first three sacral foramina. You can grab a sacrum and just confirm that it runs in a sinuous way around those. So then B almost completely fills the lesser sciatic foramen above the sacrospinous ligament. Well, that's kind of a, a nonsense comment, really, 
the piriformis stuffs the greater sciatic notch, which is closed off by the sacrospinous ligament inferiorly. C may be pierced by the common perineal nerve. And that can be correct. Usually the sciatic nerve runs below the piriformis, but in about 15% of people, the nerve is split. And then the common fibular nerve or common perineal nerve typically pierces the substance of the piriformis. And then D has the sciatic nerve running alongside about one quarter of the way between the coccygeal chip and the greater trochanter. D is actually strictly not correct. This is a landmark for the sciatic nerve, which is useful for an above-knee amputation or, say, in someone who's been uh, stabbed in the upper thigh. The nerve typically runs about halfway between the piriformis insertion site into the greater trochanter, somewhere between really the insertion of gluteus medius and the so-called superior gemellus, and a line that runs down vertically from the posterior superior iliac spine to the tip of the coccyx. So if you draw those lines, you'll then run along halfway along that and find that that's the surface anatomical landmark of the sciatic nerve. And that's useful in somebody who's been stabbed in the thigh, back of the thigh. Question eight. The buttock is, we're talking now about innovation of the buttock. The buttock is innervated by a the posterior rami of the lower two lumbar nerves. B, the posterior rami of all the sacral nerves. C, separately from L, uh, or separate, uh, um, uh, the buttock is um, separately innervated from L1 and then S234. D, has no innervation from the lateral cutaneous nerve. And E does not have an innovation from the perforating cutaneous nerve. Now, um, these things are a bit complicated. You should look out at the buttock. There'll be a picture of that somewhere in one of your textbooks. And you can look at this rather complex innovation of the buttock. Um, A is the posterior rami of the lumbar, lower lumbar two nerves is incorrect. It's the posterior upper lumbar three rami that innervate the buttock. So again, we're talking here dermatomes. You've got to separate yourself between individual cutaneous nerves and dermatomes. B, the posterior rami of all the sacral nerves innervate the buttock, is correct because the skin of the natal cleft is by the upper three. That's really for people operating on it, pilonidal sinus territory. And the lower two is a coccygeal nerve, which innervates down to the tip of the coccyx. And these are different from the ventral coccygeal plexus, which of course forms the anococcygeal nerve. And the posterior innervation of the uh, sacrotuberous ligament. And these nerves are referred to as so-called middle clunial nerves. Clunial just really means buttock. C, um, I've made that a bit confusing, but the, the buttock separates L1 from S234. What I'm trying to say there is that there's a, it's sort of a strange appearing statement, but it's correct. The anterior rami have distinctly and widely separate origins. So if you look at it, you're looking at the way the thoracoabdominal nerves run down. The subcostal nerve and the iliohypogastric nerves are really modified intercostal pattern nerves. And these have very big lateral cutaneous branches. The lateral cutaneous branch of both of these nerves actually innervates down to the lateral aspect of the buttock skin, very high up and in front. But you can see how low those nerves go. So that it's, that's T12L1, the subcostal nerve, which has made its way out from the chest below the lateral arcuate ligament. We'll be talking about the thorax uh, shortly in the next few podcasts, and the iliohypogastric nerve, which is L1, which is run across uh, the front of the quadratus lumborum. So the point about this is that these nerves are very low in their cutaneous elements, and because of the way the lower limb bud forms, it separates out that bit of the lumb 
lumbar plexus. We're really talking about T12 and L1, so we're not even into the lumbar plexus there. And then the rest of the area is supported by S234. So the lower limb has dragged out the lumbosacral plexus, and the area around the buttock explains why when you look at dermatomal patterns, you'll see a bit of L1 there, and then suddenly S234. You're missing all the rest of L2345, S12, or S1. That's all kind of missing because it's been dragged to the lower limb. We had D. The buttock has no innervation from the lateral cutaneous nerve. That's actually strictly wrong because at the lower part of the lateral buttock, there is a small representation of the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve. In truth, I don't worry too much about this contribution as in most cases it's a little bit below the lateral buttock, but it can appear in the, as part of buttock sensory innovation. And then finally, the buttock is innovated, does not have innovation from the perforating cutaneous nerve. Now again, the reason for that question is because you've got to know a little bit about the branches of the sacral plexus. Now this is certainly wrong. But the perforating cutaneous nerve is one of those six branches from the sacral plexus. It's actually S23. It perforates the sacrotuberous ligament. It innervates the postero-inferior part of the buttock in the area where the two buttocks are just kind of losing contact. And the nerve runs at the posterior edge of the ischio-anal, we now call it, but we used to call it the ischio-rectal fossa. And that little nerve, I agree, can have a variation. It can be absent, it can be replaced by a branch of the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve or by a branch of the pudendal nerve, even separately lower down by individual branches of S3-4 or S4-5. So it can have some anatomical variation. But the point about it, even though it's a correct answer, is for you to know the individual six branches of that sacral plexus. There are six Ps. We've not considered those, but there are things to look at there for the sacral plexus. We're going to be doing separate podcasts on uh, neurology and a bit on the back and plexi. We've done one on the brachial plexus, but we'll be doing one on the lumbosacral plexus. So I wouldn't worry too much about it now, except to check it out, but there are the six P's, as we might call each one, starting with a P, of which the perforating nerve is one. Okay, question nine. In the hip, the femoral head, A, does not have supply from the trochanteric anastomosis. B, has critical blood supply via the ligamentum teres. C, is compromised by direct retinacular vascular injury in a fracture of the neck of femur. And D is supported by diaphyseal supply. This is pretty straightforward. Question 9 in the hip, the femoral head, does not have supply from the trochanteric anastomosis. Well, that's false. The medial circumflex femoral artery, which we know is part of the trochanteric anastomosis, we went through that in an earlier question, that's critical to femoral head supply. B has critical blood supply via the ligamentum teres. Well, B's kind of correct. I could also say kind of not. There is a blood supply here from the obturator artery, but it typically obliterates by adolescence. So the answer is correct, strictly correct. C is compromised by direct retinacular vascular injury in a fracture of the neck of the femur. Well, C is correct, but it's more complicated than that. Not all of the retinacular vessels need to shatter, although some clearly do in a fractured neck of femur. But what happens here is that there's an intraarticular hemarthrosis so that these vessels basically become occluded. There's a very tense collection of blood inside the joint intracapsulae and the reason for that is because the fractured neck of femur is entirely intracapsular. The capsule extends down to the intertrochanteric line anteriorly if you look at a femur but less so on the back of the joint and knowledge of that point is critical in understanding the risk of avascular necrosis of the head. All these little retinacular vessels become tamponaded by a tense uh, hemarthrosis. And then finally, D, 
is supported by diaphyseal supply. Well, we know that's wrong since that closes off after the epiphysis has fused. So the point of the question is to understand why people get avascular necrosis of the femoral head. Question 10. The patella A has a higher rate of dislocation with a patella alta. B is ossified at birth. C straightens the angle of pull of the quadriceps. And D remains enlocated by the pull of the vastus medialis. That's not a difficult question. Patella has a higher rate of dislocation, certainly with a patella alta, so A is correct. And it's a measure of the so-called Salviati index. There are many other indices. I briefly mentioned some of these when we talked about the patella. But um, it basically, the Salviati index compares the patella tendon length to the length of the patella itself. But there are many indices here to assess, but a, a high-riding patella or a patella alta has a higher rate of dislocation. B is ossified at birth. Well, we remember that most stuff isn't ossified at birth. The patella starts, of course, between about three to six years, typically has a lower and an upper ossific centre. So when you say it's ossified at birth, there's a bit of the, the carpus and the, um, the tarsus but not these, not these things. C straightens the angle of pull of the quadriceps. Well, C is obviously not correct. The patella increases the leverage exerted by the quadriceps so that its presence increases rather than reduces the angle of the line of pull, the so-called Q angle or quadriceps angle, tending to dislocate it, pulling it laterally. So C is wrong, and that makes D correct because the pull of those fibres of the vastus medialis. C is certainly correct. Ask yourself, if you wanted to write a short essay as well, what are the factors that prevent patellofemoral dislocation? There's a natural tendency by that so-called Q angle, but that's resisted by the tenderness expansions of the vastus medialis insertion by, as we remember, the depth and formation of the trochlea of the femur. Although the patella is seen in many other mammals, it isn't a feature of reptiles or our, for those listening in Australia, our Australian monotremes like the, platy the platypus and the echidna. My non-Australian students might be intrigued a little by this group of egg-laying mammals for which Australia is partly famous. All right, we can go on to question 11. Concerning the menisci of the knee, A, they have horns attached to the cruciates, B, both attached to their relevant collateral ligaments, C, lateral meniscus is C-shaped, D, the meniscofemoral ligaments attached, uh, uh, anteriorly allocated, running from medial to lateral, behind the posterior cruciate. So A is they have horns attached to the cruciates, that's correct. The anterior horn of the medial meniscus is attached to the intercondylar part of the tibia in front of the anterior cruciate ligament, and the posterior horn is broader, it's far less sharp or tipped, and it's attached to the front of the posterior cruciate ligament, so that's correct. B, both attached to their relevant collateral ligaments, well, we know that's incorrect because the commoner medial injury uh, from a more common valgus strain is because the medial meniscus is attached to the medial collateral ligament, but on the lateral side, the lateral meniscus is free. C, the lateral meniscus is C-shaped, that is correct, since the horns are attached over a much smaller intercondylar area. And D, the meniscofemoral ligaments are anteriorly located running from medial to lateral behind the posterior cruciate. That's actually completely the wrong way around. They are oblique posterior meniscofemoral ligaments that straddle in front of and behind the posterior cruciate ligament uh, on their uh, way to the medial femoral condyle. And these respectively are the ligament of Humphrey 
and the ligament of Risberg in front of and behind, respectively. And it's at the back that the ligament, the so-called coronary ligament, is slack, and that's where that's perforated by the tendon of the popliteus, which is intraarticular. So it's kind of the wrong way around is that question. The meniscofemoral ligaments don't attach anteriorly running from medial to lateral behind the posterior cruciate. They're oblique, uh, straddling in front of and behind the posterior uh, cruciate, and they're on their way to the medial femoral condyle. So you have to revise that area and see what the arrangement is. Question 12. Um, in a knee block, that's an anaesthetic block, um, the supramedial part of the knee um, anaesthetizes the nerve to the vastus medialis, A. B, lateral blockade is made by the suprolateral genicular nerve, which is a branch of the common perineal. C, the inframedial nerve is a branch of the saphenous nerve, and D, the infralateral nerve, is a branch of the common fibula. So a knee block is a little bit complicated because there is a supramedial and inframedial and supralateral and infralateral component. A, the supramedial part of the knee, actually requires an anaesthetic to the nerve to the vastus medialis. That is actually correct because the supramedial genicular nerve is a branch of the nerve to the vastus medialis, and that lies just in front of the adductor tubicle. B, lateral blockade is made by the suprolateral genicular nerve, a branch of the common perineal. Not quite correct there. That's a branch, actually, of the sciatic nerve lying near the posterior superior angle of the lateral condyle. True, the supralateral part of the knee needs to be blocked, uh, but it's not the correct origin here. The infrapatella branch is actually a branch uh, of the saphenous nerve. C, the inframedial branch is a branch of the saphenous nerve. C is actually incorrect. The inframedial genicular nerve is a branch of the sciatic nerve just beneath the tibial collateral ligament. And D, the infralateral nerve is a branch of the common fibula. And that is correct. It lies at the level of the top of the tibial tuberosity. So it's worth, again, whilst we're looking at the sort of cutaneous nerve arrangement around the buttocks, to also have a look at the cutaneous nerves around the knee. Um, so quite a complex answer. Question 13. The tibialis anterior lies, A, lies alongside the anterior tibial vessels, B, runs under the superior and inferior extensor retinaculi. C, inserts into the medial part of the proximal phalanx of the great toe. D, innovation is via the superficial perineal nerve. There's a lot of wrong stuff in there. The tibialis anterior, A, lies alongside the anterior tibial vessels. That's obviously false. The muscle is actually divided as part of a below-knee amputation. Once you've done that, you expose these vessels, which directly um, lie on top of the interosseous membrane. That's also a useful exposure for a femorodistal bypass. So the uh, muscle runs in front of the anterior tibial vessels. B, runs under the superior and inferior extensor retinaculi. Well, that's correct. Here you're on the front of the ankle, and that can have significance in, say, a foot drop. If you're using a tendon transfer, it's worth knowing precisely where the, this particular muscle is if you're using it as a tendon transfer. So it does run under the superior and inferior extensor retinaculi. <coughs> C, inserts into the medial part of the proximal phalanx of the great toe. That's obviously incorrect. The insertion, as we recall, is into the medial cuneiform and the base of the first metatarsal. And that's important because it's a similar, although not the same, insertion as the perineus longus. And that allows one to really plant a flex and the other to dorsiflex the foot uh, that is in inversion. So 
that's the mechanism of the way those muscles act. And D, innovation is via the superficial perineal nerve. Well, D is obviously incorrect, although a superficial muscle, the tibialis anterior, is part of the extensor compartment of the leg, and it's innervated by its compartment nerve, which is, of course, the deep fibular nerve, not the superficial um, perineal uh, uh, a superficial perineal or fibular nerve, which is a very cutaneous nerve. It's mixed nerve as well because it innervates the perinei. Question 14. The dorsalis pedis artery, A, joins the medial plantar artery through the first toe cleft. B, has a tarsal branch. B, its arcuate branch gives off dorsal metatarsal arteries. And D, it laterally communicates with the perforating perineal artery. Um, A, normally the single foot arch is formed by a dominant lateral plantar artery, to remember that. Uh, it does join um, the lateral plantar artery more so through the first toe cleft. It can join the medial plantar artery through that toe cleft, but normally the single foot arch is formed by a more dominant lateral plantar artery. So bits of A are correct, but bits of it are not correct. So I would have said a not correct answer there. B has a tarsal branch. That's correct. The dorsalis pedis artery does. Branch is often quite large, and it's usually referred to as the lateral tarsal artery. And that can be important in a very distal bypass uh, in limb salvage. C, its arcuate branch gives off dorsal metatarsal arteries is correct. Uh, uh, these are how actually the metatarsal arteries communicate in the, met in the metatarsal spaces with the plantar arch. Um, D, laterally communicates with the perforating perineal artery. That's certainly correct. And it's a mechanism for collateralization of the foot. It's of no little significance, this communication or uh, collateral. The perineal artery, which some of us tend to forget a little, even in vascular reconstruction, provides several important perforators which run through the deep fascia to supply the perineal muscles. But not only this forms the basis of kind of lateral foot flaps, such as a lateral calcanean flap, these soft tissue defects of the heel, which we know uh, can be sort of pressure ulcers, are very difficult reconstructions because of the immobility and limited amount of tissue. The area is relatively not pliable, continually exposed to pressure and friction forces. So that area of the skin can be fed by fairly constant perineal perforators for flat reconstruction. Uh, as composite skin, fascial, and even tenosynovial flaps. So the anatomy has some importance here. Question 15. The posterior calf skin, A, is innervated by the posterior femoral nerve. B, is innervated by the peroneal communicating nerve. C, has no lumbar representative element. And D, continues as S1 into the plantar surface of the entire foot. So the posterior calf skin is, is innervated by the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve. That's correct. Although it's more commonly we call it the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve. This is really what used to be called the posterior cutaneous nerve of the thigh. And I think what's interesting about this nerve is that it's comprised of both the anterior and posterior lumbosacral root divisions, typically the dorsal divisions of S1 and 2 and the ventral divisions of S2 and 3, although this can vary a little. And, and unlike the radial nerve, this nerve runs <coughs> subfascially, which I think protects it and the sciatic nerve from injury because it tends to interpose on top of the sciatic nerve. Posterior calf skin is innervated B by the perineal communicating nerve. That is also correct. And here the perineal communicating nerve joins the sural nerve so that the common fibula and the tibial are both represented on the back of the calf. C has no lumbar representative element. C is wrong. We've, we've actually not been through the dermatomes, and I think you should look this up 
visually anywhere you care to, but there is a lateral sliver of L2 that is represented on the calf throughout its entire length, right down to the ankle. And as you move more medially, then this becomes S1 and S2, and these, of course, critical in lumbosacral disease or lumbosacral trauma. And then D continues as S1 into the plantar surface of the entire foot. That isn't correct either. The dermatome continues into the foot as S1, all right, but only over the heel and the lateral half of the foot. The medial foot is actually covered by L4 very medially and then by L5 in the intervening space. So that's not strictly correct. You might have thought it was correct, but it's not not correct. Question 16. Uh, a lower limb fasciotomy A is usually performed on either the medial or the lateral calf. B, medial fasciotomy, decompresses the superficial leg flexor compartment. C, can be performed with an isolated fibula excision. And D, middle third excision of the fibula can injure the perineal artery. There's a lot of true statements in there. A, a lower limb fasciotomy is usually performed on either the medial or the lateral calf. Fasciotomy is usually doubly performed on both sides. B, medial fasciotomy decompresses the superficial leg flexor compartment. The aim, actually, of a medial fasciotomy is to decompress both the superficial and the deep flexor compartments. So I want you to understand, really, what we're talking about in this question, whether you can say, well, that's correct, or you say it's not strictly correct. The idea is to know what, what, uh, what we're actually talking about. C, can be performed with an isolated fibular excision. C is strictly correct. Although, as I said, I think in the podcast, I don't know anyone who's actually doing this. If you look at, um, at a cross-section of the leg as the middle third of the fibula attaches all of the intermuscular scepter, it is theoretically possible that excision of that part of the fibula would decompress all compartments adequately. And finally, D, the middle third excision of the fibula can injure the perineal artery. And that is absolutely correct. It's one of the reasons, I think, why that middle third fibular excision isn't often performed because the perineal artery hugs the fibular interosseous border and it can be readily injured here either surgically or even with a fractured fibula. Question 17. The tibial nerve A comprises L45S12. And these are typical answers we're looking for here. B does not have popliteal fossa branches. C, the nerve to the popliteus innervates the tibialis posterior. And D, the medial plantar branch of the tibial nerve is larger than the lateral plantar branch. So quite specific questions. So as it comprises L45S12, generally the tibial nerve incorporates the myotomes and dermatomes of L45S123. It's a bit more expanded. The common fibular nerve is the lesser expansion, but as we know from the brachial plexus podcast, that the plexi can be prefixed or postfixed, as well as expanded or contracted. B does not have popliteal fossa branches. That's definitely wrong, because there's a number of branches coming from the tibial nerve in the popliteal fossa. These include the muscular branch. Just think about if you can list what you think they might be, if you're writing a short essay on it. These include the muscular branch in the distal part of the fossa, which supplies the medial and lateral gastrocnemial heads, the soleus and the plantaris, as well as the popliteus. So quite a number of branches in the popliteal fossa. C, the nerve to the popliteus innervates the tibialis posterior. Well, C is correct. Uh, The nerve innervates the tibialis posterior, but what else? Well, it also actually innervates the superior tibiofibular joint, the tibial bone itself, the interosseous membrane, and the inferior tibiofibular joint. There are also the cutaneous branches of the tibial nerve in the popliteal fossa, the medial sural nerve, and some articular branches, as well as the middle and inferior genicular nerves. So again, if you're writing a short essay on that, write a short essay 
on the tibial nerve in the popliteal fossa? It's not a bad question. And see if you know it or remember it. And D, the medial plantar branch is larger than the lateral plantar branch. And I'm saying typically, that is typically also true. Even though the lateral plantar nerve supplies more sole musculature, the cutaneous element of the medial plantar nerve is greater. And um, it, it, it shows uh, uh, in its size. Question 18. Continue on, on this theme... The medial plantar nerve A passes between the adductor, ADD ductor, haliosis, and the quadratus plantae. B, its distribution resembles that of the median nerve in the upper limb. C, arises, it arises higher than the vascular takeoff at the ankle. D, it innervates the tarsal joints and metatarsal joints. So looking at the medial plantar nerve A passing between the adductor haliosis and the quadratus, well, that's wrong, that's the wrong layer. The nerve runs between the abductor haliosis and the flexor digitorum brevis, typically. But so like the hand, it's medially located between the great toe musculature and the equivalent in the hand of the flexor digitorum superficialis, which is the flexor digitorum brevis. The adductor, of course, lies at a much deeper level, and the quadratus plantae is the lateral side of the long flexors, also at a slightly deeper level. So just remind yourself what that question's asking you is what are the layers of the sole? And you can go through the sole and uh, listen to the podcast again. Um, I mentioned in that podcast that if you're looking at the... Uh, foot structure really and its stability it's worth listening to the latter part of the podcast again after you've listened to the start of it so that you understand the structures of the long and short plantar ligaments for example continue with this question the medial plantar nerve its distribution resembles that of the median nerve well that's certainly correct and as you know by now that's one of my pet peeves to try and make the anatomy more understandable by upper limb and lower limb homology. There are differences, as we know, but the similarities outweigh these differences. The muscular branch of the medial plantar nerve uh, innervates the abductor haliosis, the flexor digitorum brevis, the flexor haliosis brevis. Think about what that might do, as well as, of course, the first lumbrical, but not the first two lumbricals, which is typically the median nerve. But the cutaneous distribution is certainly similar, that kind of three and a half, one and a half distribution that we know about. So think about that question's got a lot more to it than just kind of a multi-choice whether you're correct or not. C, the medial plantar nerve arises higher than the vascular takeoff. That's the takeoff of the posterior tibial artery into the medial and lateral plantar arteries. And C is incorrect. The arterial and neural arrangement, that is the relationship, is different in the foot than in the hand. If we go back in the hand, the nerves lie outside the arteries, whereas that's the reverse with the foot. The arterial split is therefore higher. And that has real-world real implications for the predictable risk of a neural injury if a hand or a foot is shoved through a plate glass window. If you find arterial bleeding from the wrist, you're pretty sure that the nerve is probably injured as well. Certainly on the medial side, the ulnar nerve is likely to be injured. That's not necessarily the case in the foot that's gone through a plate glass window. And so it's got practical real-world significance. Question 19. The navicular bone, A, has a medial tubicle that attaches the spring ligament. B, has no distal articulation. C, attaches the tibialis anterior. And D, ossifies at birth. There's another one about ossification at birth. So A, has a medial tubicle that attaches the spring ligament. Well, that's correct. The lateral attachment here is for the bifurcate ligament. B, has no distal articulation. Well, that's obviously wrong. There's a three-ridge articulation. If you take a navicular out and have a look at it, there's the medial of which is the base downwards with the other two sort of apex down. And these are the different articulations with the wedge-shaped cuneiforms that all seem kind of squeezed together like a forced jigsaw piece. C, 
the navicular bone attaches the tibialis anterior. Well, that's wrong. The attachment is for the tibialis posterior, which, remember, attaches to virtually everything except the talus, depending on how you view it. Uh, but C is really the attachment to the tibialis posterior. The tibialis anterior, we said before, attaches to the base of the first metatarsal, the part of the medial cuneiform. It hasn't got anything to do with the navicular bone. And, of course, D ossifies at birth. We know these don't ossify at birth. We know that's wrong. Since the cuboid is the birth monitor, the navicular ossifies when you're about four or so. And that can be a useful trick, by the way, that when you look at a foot X-ray to try and guess the age of a child, if there's a small ossific centre in the navicular, the child is likely to be four. Certainly there's not younger than that. And here we are finally arriving, hopefully, at question 20. The flexor accessorius, quadratus plantae, A, arises by two fleshy heads from the calcanean processes. B, has a visible long plantar ligament between its heads of origin. C, inserts into the proximal phalanges. D, inserts where the synovial sheaths of the tendons are bare. E is innervated by both the medial and the lateral plantar nerves. Well, there's a lot of obvious wrong stuff in there. Flexor accessorius arises by two fleshy heads from the calcanean or calcanean processes. That's wrong. <coughs> the medial head is quite fleshy, but the lateral head is typically pretty stringy and tendinous. B has a visible long plantar ligament between its heads of origin. That's absolutely true. Uh, C, inserts into the proximal phalanges. Well, that's false. The muscle is unusual because it inserts directly into the lateral tendons of the flexor digitorum longus. And it's the same point, of course, where the lumbricals take off in the proximal foot. Uh, D, inserts where the synovial sheaths of the tendons are bare. That's actually false. It's just where the tendons actually pick up their synovial sheaths, although there are bare areas of these tendons, but they're a little bit more distal, typically. So typically the answer to this question is false, but that has implications. I mean, it's not just a useless fact, it's a, a clinical piece of information for the pathogenesis of suppurative tenosynovitis and for its spread. Uh, so where the bare areas are, where the extent of a suppurated tenosynovitis may take off in the digit or in the proximal foot. And then E, the flexor accessorius finally is innervated by both the medial and the lateral plantar nerves. Well, that's false. We discussed the medial plantar nerve. Everything else is the job, of course, of the lateral plantar nerve. So that's the innovation. So if you want to go back to the podcast, I think on the sole of the foot, in this case, you can check out a bit more about its function and its phylogenetics. Okay, we might, I think, let's see if I can put together a second quiz for the lower limb next, um, before we move on to the thorax, maybe a 10-pointer. Anyway, thanks so much for listening, uh, and I'll see you next time.